0: Real level of honesty. The question is, why are you here? Really, why are you here? Don't be satisfied with the first answer the mind responds with. See if you can get in touch deeply with why you're practicing. you actually to consider this question because unless there's a clear understanding of why you're here and why you're practicing the effort you make the energy you bring to your practice will not be in alignment with your true purpose. So take the time now to actually answer that for yourself. Why are you practicing? no one here is practicing in order to learn how to walk slowly. Although if you wanted to learn that, it might be a good place to do it. (laughs) I think for all of us, When we look at the motivation in our mind to practice, there is in all of us some sense of incompleteness or non-fulfillment or non-actualization of the wholeness of our being, All of those things which are included in the Pali word dukkha, or unsatisfactoriness, is some quality that's not quite complete or fulfilled. So we look and we investigate and we see we explore what is the nature of this mind and body what's the nature of our lives what's the nature of existence and where does this separation happen why is it that we're not complete in our lives that we're not realized that is realized realizing ourselves as human beings. We begin to see as we pay attention that the process is not one of reaching out to become something else, but rather a settling back to become more fully who we are rather than who we think we are. The problem in many of our lives is that we've created an extremely strong image of ourselves. And that image is slightly out of focus. We're beings not in focus because we identify, both in obvious levels and also very deep levels, we identify with who we think we are rather than settling back into actually being who we are. How do these self-images how does this identification with self-image get created? And so strong, it's so strong in our lives that they're often invisible. We've become so identified with the image or the persona or the mask of ourselves that we don't even realize that that's what we're identified with. How does this happen? How do we get so identified with that? It happens because of ignorance, of not paying attention. As you've noticed over and over again, the tendency of the mind to get lost. Getting lost means not knowing where it is, not knowing what the present experience is. So we get lost in thought. We get lost in thought a lot. In fact, we spend most of our lives lost in thought. And we take the thought to be real. A favorite line of Munindraji's, which illustrates the dilemma, a thought of your mother is not your mother. And yet when we're lost in that thought, we think that it is. How many scenarios have we created and written and directed and played in, starred in? lost in the thought about things, taking the thought to be the actual experience. Reinforcing the self-images which we bring to those thought patterns. We get lost in emotion. Strong emotions come. Strong mind energies come and overpower the mind and we get carried away as if, we, as if being swept up in this typhoon of the mind. Lost in them means not being aware of the energy of them but a totally identified involvement where there's no space in the mind for understanding or for seeing. We get lost in attitudes. Attitudes are even more subtle than thoughts or emotions. Often we don't even know what our attitudes are. Our attitudes about experience. Our attitudes about sensations in the body. Our attitudes about thoughts. About the different emotions we have. If you think of attitudes perhaps as the subtle posturings of the mind, do you have a sense of what that means, the posturings of the mind, those almost invisible stances the mind takes through which it views all experience. It's very helpful to begin to sensitize ourselves to these posturings of the mind, the attitudes of the mind, the self-images that we create. Because unless we can let go unless we can see them and let go of them, it prevents us from settling back directly and simply and clearly into the moment's experience. It's as if always we are experiencing things through the filter of these attitudes. As you practice, begin to experience various objects of experience, that is thoughts and sensations and sounds and emotions, and going along and everything is fine. And from time to time, you notice that the mind backs into a corner from which it starts commenting on what's happening. Those are the corners of the mind that have to be looked at with awareness. Because when we're not aware of those corners, that is the commentator in the mind. When we're not aware of the commentator, and sometimes the commentator is judgmental, and sometimes reactive, and sometimes angry, and sometimes grasping. And we're not aware of the mind backing into a corner from which it's observing things. What happens is we identify ourselves, we create the self in that identification. We create that sense of duality or separation. And this problem of unsatisfactoriness or lack of wholeness, lack of completion was expressed directly into the point by this one writer. when he said, as long as there is any one to suffer, they will. As long as there is anyone to suffer, they will. Because that sense of separate self is exactly what is at the root of the separation, of that incompleteness. So, what to do with all of this? You no, know, we've been sitting for about a month now and you must have gotten a very strong sense of the nature of the mind. That is, the mind being this incredibly powerful, dynamic, conditioned, changing energy going through all kinds of states of calmness and peacefulness and anger and desire, and wanting and liking and disliking and interest and boredom, lost in thought, lost in fantasy, being concentrated, being mindful, constant change of creative energy. How to create some stability in the mind, how to create... A quality of stability so that we're able to explore and discover and come back into ourselves to settle back into being who we are so that we're not continually caught by this whirlwind of energy. We're not continually spun out of ourselves, not continually lost in thought and emotion and reaction and attitude. What are the conditions which create the stability of mind? There are different levels of working depending on the circumstances that we're engaged in in our lives. One of the fundamental ways of creating a stability in the mind is appreciating and working with the precepts. The Buddha spoke so often about the power of the precepts. mostly we hear of the precepts and it seems like something like the 10 Commandments, some list of do's and don'ts. And we really lose a sense of the power involved in understanding what they mean and in applying them in our lives. The power of them comes from the tremendous stability that comes to the mind from them. It is impossible to concentrate our mind. It is impossible to develop a real equilibrium if our lives, if our actions are not in harmony. So it's really important to reflect, not only for our lives outside of here, but even in a much more refined way. Do you consider, do you consider the, the meaning or the quality of following the precepts while you're here. And there's not so much opportunity for gross infraction here, I think. <laughs> Sometimes we hear stories. <laughs> but more to, to reflect on, on the refinement that's possible in this kind of situation. What real moral action is, real non-harming. To be very careful with one's actions. And you see that that care leads to a tremendous power, tremendous strength. And certainly, in our lives, in the world, in interpersonal relationships, it's essential. And pay attention in your own lives, either through reflection on the past or as you're going through various situations, of the kind of mind states involved when we're not in harmony with those basic precepts. Really investigate and explore the nature, the quality of the mind. My own experience is one of a much greater degree of confusion and instability and remorse and regret. All those qualities which make it very difficult to achieve stability. The precepts. Something else which is conducive to stabilizing the mind energy is simplicity. Really living simply. Contentment. In the teachings of the Buddha, you read very often of the value placed on contentment. So when the mind is contented easily, there's there's an ease of living, there's a happiness of living. And it seems so obvious when you observe the nature of desire and wanting and grasping and the quality of mind involved in that. Contrast that with the quality of mind of simplicity and contentment the ease and the happiness of it is so apparent and so obvious. Another way of stabilizing the mind, and it's the one that we're focusing on during the retreat, is that of a very careful, focused attention to experience. Mindfulness, the factor of mindfulness, has the power to balance the mind. Because what mindfulness does is bring us into a true relationship to experience. That is, when we're mindful of what's happening, we settle back into the moment with that quality of accepting and allowing and opening. It's not what's happening that's important. Rather, it's our relationship to what's happening. That's a very important statement in terms of understanding the practice. And if you understand that, it should make you very happy. It's not what's happening that's important. What does that mean? It means we can absolutely give up striving for something in particular to happen. What's important is our relationship to what's happening. When we understand that, then it becomes possible simply to settle back and to open up to the flow of changing experience and whatever is happening is fine simply to be open to it to be aware of it there's one quality underlying all of these ways of bringing stability to the mind energy and it's a quality that is spoken of many, many, many times in the teachings of the Buddha. You pick up almost any sutra and the Buddha is talking of it. And it's something that is almost totally absent from American social values. In fact, people generally don't even like to hear the word. And the word is restraint. What's your reaction to the word restraint? (laughs) Don't like. (laughs) I think it's very important to understand really what restraint means because it is so much a part of our path of practice, and it's so much at the heart of what we have to do in order to bring the mind to a place of equilibrium, of openness. Mostly, People think of restraint as suppression. Restraining desire, what does that mean? Suppress it, sit on it, avoid it, deny it. Repress it. That's not what restraint means at all. Restraint means not dispersing or not dissipating our energy. Now as we go through the day, you've noticed I'm sure very often going along and being focused and being present, and being aware, and then a desire comes and we go out to it. and You can feel the energy leaking out. Or we get caught in some negative reaction Restraint is the awareness of the mind, the discriminating wisdom of the mind, which can see that an action, that an activity is not skillful, is not conducive to understanding, to peace, to happiness, to the things actually which we want. Restraint is that ability of the mind, that power of the mind to see that and to say, no, I don't have to do that. Now an unrestrained mind is a bit like an unrestrained child. Just imagine a totally unrestrained three-year-old. What would it be like living? with that kind of being. Temper tantrums, excessive reactions, very difficult, They're very difficult to live with. Our minds are somewhat like that, often more than somewhat. <laughs> It's learning to see that it's possible to cultivate restraint without any trace of aversion, without any trace of judgment, without any trace of suppression or denying or pushing away. Rather, it's just the clear seeing of something that's not skillful, that's not appropriate, that's not helpful. And having the strength of mind to say no, I'm not going to do that, this restraint is a counterbalance to the addictive qualities in the mind. Our mind gets addicted out of habit, it gets addicted to thought, It gets addicted to sense pleasures. It gets addicted to different emotions. We just develop these habits of response, of being, where the mind is caught by that addiction. There's a story from the the scriptures of this monkey who lived very happily up in the forests, in the mountains. He was just jumping from tree to tree and enjoying his freedom. And one day he got curious about what was going down on the plains. So he came down, started exploring, and some hunters had laid out a trap of tar, that black pitch sticky substance. The monkey didn't know what it was. So he sticks one paw in the tar, gets stuck. Can't get out. So what does he do? He puts another pore in the paw, paw in the tar, you know, to try to extricate himself. And then both are stuck. And he puts the third one in, trying to, to get the other two out. Stuck even more. Puts the fourth one in. You know. All four get stuck. He starts putting his head in to, to try to get out. His head gets stuck. Quite firmly entangled. We do a very similar thing you know, with our addictions. <laughs> that is we go, and we go exploring, and we get addicted to whatever it is. It can be different of the sense pleasures, you know, and we, we get stuck with one, and then we, we feel the tension and the suffering of that. So we try another one to relieve the suffering of the first, we get stuck in that. And then our two feet, and then our heads until we're totally entangled by that quality of addiction, of grasping, of holding, of wanting. Restraint is the counterbalance to that. And it's a tremendously, can be a tremendously powerful and strengthening force in our lives to see that we actually have the power that we have the strength to restrain the mind. And it can be done in a very gentle way, very soft way, in the same way that we would discipline a young child. Right? You don't beat the child on the head, you just very gently and very softly you know. you'll see that as you work with the quality of restraint you will begin to feel that it's actually a conservation of energy and that conservation of energy makes for a tremendous strength in our minds and in our lives Everything we do, in our actions, in our thoughts, in our emotions, in our attitudes, reconditions our mind. (coughs) Understanding that is very important because then you really begin to take care and be respectful of every moment's experience. What actually are we cultivating in each moment? Every moment of experience reconditions in its own way, this whole mind energy that we are. And by mind, I don't mean, sometimes there's a a confusion because of the English word. I don't mean mind the intellect. I mean big, big, big mind. You know, the mind, heart, energy system. Life, that's what I mean by mind. Every moment's experience reconditions this life energy of ours. So what are we doing? What are we doing with our lives? Every time we get lost, You know, in desire, lost in emotion, lost in thought. We're cultivating that sense of ignorance, of delusion, of not knowing. In every moment of awareness, of attention, of restraint, we're actually cultivating a sense of letting go, of freedom. Ignorance and craving, those are the two factors around which all of samsara, this whole cycle of life and death and rebirth, it all revolves around those two factors of mind. Ignorance and craving. Ignorance means not knowing what's going on, being lost. Craving is that addictive mind, the wanting mind, the grasping mind. Craving feeds ignorance. Ignorance feeds craving. So we go around and around in a circle. Ignorance of what? Ignorance of seeing that our life experience, that this life energy is constantly changing. Do you know that after a month of practice, do you really know deeply that it's all changing? Is there anything that hasn't changed? in the time that you've been here your thoughts, your feelings, the sensations, the breath everything and yet still because although we know it on some levels we keep forgetting that it's all changing what happens the mind the mind attaches it grasps It craves. Restraint. Actually restraining the mind from desire. And it's not, again, uh, it's not condemning, it's not judging, it's not aversion to desire. It's simply saying, no, It's settling back into the moment and actually being with what's happening. It allows us to see impermanence more clearly. It allows us to settle into the experience of the selfless nature of this whole process. I'd like to do a little experiment, which I've done with some of you in the interviews. If you could just sit and hold your hands together for a moment. And simply experience the feeling that's there, the sensations of contact. When you're just with the sensations, the pressure, the softness, the hardness, the heat, the cold. Are there any hands? Are there any fingers? And you just with the sensation, closely attentive at the place of contact, No fingers, no hands. In that experience, where are you? Is there any you in that? Is there any self in that? Or is there just what there is? To each moment's experience, seeing it, experiencing it for just what's there. Begin to experience and th- experiencing things with this understanding of selflessness, emptiness of self, emptiness of I coming back into a realization, an actualization of this process. If you can consider actually why you're here and why you're practicing, I think it will lend an energy and a confidence to the practice. It will put you in alignment with your purpose. Do you have any questions?
1: simplify simplified, like you mentioned the commandments, just as a comment in Hebrew, it is not commandments, it's not it's sayings. That's the Do you really think fundamentally? understanding, let's say, of that and the punishment, is that fundamentally different from the precepts and karma? On a very basic level, I I don't see where it's so different.
0: sometime in the next couple of weeks going to give a talk about karma and so go into the implications of it in a in a deeper way one of the more obvious ones is the question of responsibility that is when we have the idea of actions and sin and punishment right it's as if we create a sense of duality between ourselves and that being right, who's dispensing the, the judgment or the punishment. When we understand karma as an unfolding of natural law, it's, it's like you plant an apple seed and you get an apple tree rather than a mango. Right? You understand that, then there's a the sense of responsibility then, for one's own actions, and it's not put in any way outside of oneself. The consequences of one's acts are not relegated to some other being.
1: whether one is calling it punishment or karma or whatever, on the illusion level, if, as long as we're not really touching whatever what you call it, enlightenment whatever you want to call it, then we still entangle whichever corner of the world we are in the same thing of whether we're calling it, even a person who believes in karma, I mean, I, I, in the East, there's that feeling of, I give the monk alms, and how many people are giving it because they want merits right. or afraid yeah. of punishment? In fact, uh, I mean, I don't see how to get out right. of it
0: because we all
1: people uh, with the same.
0: Right. So what's the? I don't, I don't yet see the problem that you're asking about.
1: I feel I'm, I'm entangled, and when I come back to really thinking who we are. As People, Everybody, East, West. So, as long as we're in the realm of illusion, then inevitably it's, we'll get trapped in the same thing of treating, even if we say, okay, it's not punishment, no guilt. It's very nice to say it. I love it when you say it, it's music, but what does it mean in. in real action
0: as long as I'm in illusion. What does it mean?
1: Maybe we're working on it, but I don't know. You know I mean, How do you exam, examine that honesty of listening to something, thinking you understand it, but that and, and true action is, is somewhere like separate? I don't
0: know. I'm, I'm not sure that I'm really understanding the question very well. It's possible to understand that our actions bring result, and still to act in a very pure and spontaneous way. So in other words, we can understand that an act of generosity brings good result, and still not be motivated by that, the understanding can be there, and still have the act of generosity come in a very spontaneous and open way. If it's still not clear, we can discuss it. Right, I understand that. There's a, there are two different mind states which I think are very important to distinguish, and that's the mind state of guilt and what I call remorse. Guilt is an ego trick. Guilt is a, it's a trick and we condemn ourselves for that and we judge ourselves and in all of that simply creating a stronger sense of an I, of a self who did something wrong. It's not at all in harmony with the understanding of impermanence because what guilt does is to solidify. We solidify the act, we, we solidify ourselves as being a bad person. It's totally a trick of Mara. It's like a negative self, but it's really, it's still I, it's still ego. Remorse, on the other hand, is that quality of mind which can see that something unskillful was done. We see it, we learn from it, and we forgive it because Remorse understands that everything is changing, right? That there's no there's no permanent self or I that remains, that it's all a unfolding process. So there's the acknowledgement of it. It's not a denial or a suppression of it. There's the acknowledgement that this was not so skillful. We see it, and there's wisdom that comes from it, and a forgiveness and a letting go. So I think it's It was very helpful for me to examine in my mind the nature of guilt because when I saw clearly how it was just an ego trick, it became much easier to let go of it. Actually, I feel as if the talk didn't come out so clearly tonight. (laughs) But what I wanted to express is the possibility or the acknowledgement of a strength of mind that we have and which we can develop. that our minds have become very habituated, habituated to particular responses of getting lost in various things. You know, lost in desire and lost in our emotions, lost in thought. But that actually we have the strength. You know, you you said that your stomach got all shaky because you felt you didn't have the strength to do it. What I wanted to suggest is that we all do have the strength. That's one of the capabilities or the potentials or or the qualities of mind that actually can be developed and made very powerful and is very freeing. So whether you want to call it letting go, which if you can let go in every moment, is wonderful, or if you find it helpful to think of it in terms of restraint, you know, or saying no to the mind. Whatever way gives you a sense of that possibility I think will be very helpful. You know, it's, uh, so much in our culture we think that we work through things by, in, by the indulgence of them. And I'll, I'll just work through this, you know, I'll get to the end that way. That does work sometimes, and sometimes it's appropriate, but it's helpful to understand that there's another very effective and and powerful way of working with the mind. We don't have to be afraid, you know, of this quality of restraint because it's it's a tremendous power and a tremendous strength in our lives. But I know the word is not in favor. No truly, you know, it's not it's not in our cultural system.
1: I feel like i have to keep I very
0: natural, but Right, absolutely, and I, I appreciate you saying that. And as I said in the talk, but we'll reiterate, It is not judgment, and it's not aversion. It's like if you're holding a hot coal in your hand, do you have to restrain yourself from holding on? You know, and do you think, oh, holding on is holding on is bad, therefore I should restrain, restrain it. No, you just let go. It's the same thing. Restraint in the way that I'm using it is really a function of wisdom. It's simply seeing that some actions are not conducive to happiness, are not conducive to peacefulness. And it's not judging them. It's not saying, oh, you're bad or I'm bad. You know, and it's not—it's not condemning. It's not a judgmental mind at all. It's a very gentle mind. It, it's a humorous mind. You can really keep a sense of humor with it, and say, "I don't have to do this." You know, I don't have to—I don't have to get lost in it. And so, what you pointed out, Jeff, is is very helpful. It's not. To get caught in a judgmental state. That's not helpful at all. But it's just, it's really a state of spaciousness. Does not the use of the little no thank you sort of have
1: the effect of throwing a little bit of water on the fire, or of letting go of sort of poking at the fire is going to sort of die down in itself?
0: Maybe. <laughs> Oh, it does. You know, sometimes some way of working, even with those of you who have been going through very repetitive thought patterns. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> t- I was doing a. Actually, almost every every retreat that I do myself at some time or another my mind just gets locked into, you know, sometimes it's a fantasy and sometimes it's angry, but just, you know, the tape loop over and over again. And An effective way that I found of working, although we're hesitant